0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Crush Course, the podcast for the wine curious. I'm your host, Sarah, coming to you from Sonoma Valley, California, and this week, we're talking about grapes. That's right, folks, it's time for some plant biology. Grapes really are the building blocks of wine, so I thought it only makes sense that we start at the basics before we go any deeper into winemaking itself. So let's get to it, shall we? Most of you are probably familiar with the grapes that you see at the supermarket. You've got your red grapes and your green grapes and even some fancy varieties that taste like carnival confections. But the grapes that I want to talk about today are a bit different. To understand these grapes we have to understand the plant that grows them, the grapevine. No matter the end destination of the fruit all grapevines are classified into the genus Vitus The plants in this genus are identified by their structure, or the lack thereof. Grapevines are lianas, which is any woody plant that does not naturally develop a trunk or any sort of support structure. Lianas are essentially living parasites that take advantage of the structure of trees or any other sort of support system to grow and flourish. Sure, you could leave them to grow on the ground all by themselves. But it would just become a mass of intertwining vines and leaves, and it really wouldn't do any good for the plant. Lianas are built to climb. Grapevines do need a little bit of support, and we provide that by training them. This is how we manipulate and shape the vine in its early years that will determine the shape of the grapevine in adulthood. If you've ever seen a vineyard or a picture of one, You've probably noticed that all the vines are supported by metal poles and wire. That's a trellis system. Some have the vines shooting straight up while others have them draping over like a curtain. Other times, vines will be trained like short bushes, with the vines fanning out like petals on a flower. We can choose the shape of the grapevine and manipulate it to not only maximize the health and the yield of the vine, but also to make it easier to harvest the fruit. Plus, it makes for such a pretty picture. Next, we move on to species. Again, wine grapes, as well as raisin and table grapes, all fall into the same species, Vitus vinifera. This species originated in the Mediterranean and spread throughout Europe and then eventually to the United States. There are actually several species of wine grapes native to the US, like Vitis labrusca and Vitis riparia. And they're very important for rootstocks, but that's another show. These species also produce grapes, but it's pretty rare to see them used in winemaking. I think the most well-known example of a wine made from a Native American species is muscadine wine. The muscadine grape is from the species Vitis rotundifolia and grows wild in the American Southeast. It's an interesting wine, a little smoky, a little sweet. It's certainly different from what most people are used to when it comes to wine. Where we see wine grapes branch off from table and raising grapes is in the classification step just below species, which is variety. Variety is the name that you will often see on the wine label, such as Cabernet Sauvignon, Chardonnay, or Zinfandel. Varieties differ from one another based on the characteristics of the vine, as well as the sensory character of the wine made from its fruit. Think of the different varieties of wine grapes as different breeds of dog. They're all the same to a point genetically, but have unique characteristics that clearly separate them from one another. Currently, it's estimated that there are about 10,000 different grape varieties across the globe, but only a very small percentage of those are commercially grown for wine production. We're all very familiar with varieties like Chardonnay and Merlot, but I would bet that most of you haven't heard of Chocolina or Riccazzatelli. What keeps our selection of grape varieties so limited is a combination of tradition and consumer preference, which sort of feed into each other. For most of its history, California produced a wide range of grape varieties, since California was settled by a wide variety of immigrants. They brought the varieties that they knew from home and grew them here for their own enjoyment, for decades, California was dominated by Spanish and Italian varieties, such as Zinfandel, Barbera, and Tempranillo, with a smattering of German varieties as well. After the 1970s, and thanks in part to Robert Mondavi, Stag's Leap, and The Judgment of Paris, California vineyards were quickly ripped out and replaced with Cabernet Sauvignon and Chardonnay, since that was what had gained its such popularity. However... Since the turn of the 21st century, we've seen more and more vineyards planting those original Spanish and Italian varieties. They grow really well here and produce such delicious wine. And we're also seeing some new and exciting varieties that have never had their chance to shine. A quick note, going forward as we discuss their development and composition, I will be referring to grapes as berries, since that's what they are botanically. Just didn't want anyone to get confused. Now that we have a good understanding of grapevines, we can move on to the fruit, and the fruit starts with the flower. If you have a pen or pencil nearby, I want you to do a quick visual demo. Take the pencil and hold it between your palms in line with your middle fingers. Now, keeping your palms, your thumbs, and your pinkies glued together, try to open up your hand like a flower when it blooms. Once you're there, Take a look at it. The pencil is the female portion or the stigma and the tips of your fingers would be the anthers where the pollen is produced. Grapevine flowers are considered perfect or hermaphroditic because they possess both the male and the female genetic information on a single flower. Now, all it takes is just a little bit of wind or the help from a friendly bee to knock some of that pollen from your fingers, the anthers, to get to the pencil The stigma. Once fertilized, the female part will swell and develop into the beginning of a berry. Once the flower has been fertilized and the berry starts to develop, we call this the first phase. Don't worry, there are only three phases in total. At this time in development, the plant is purely focused on making sure that each and every berry has the proper structure and chemistry. Think of this first phase as the bones of a house, the wooden skeleton before you put all the walls and the furniture in. During this phase, acids develop, tannins are produced in the skins and the seeds, and anthocyanins are produced in the skins. All three of these are hugely important in the mouthfeel and the character of the finished wine. It's also during this stage that we see certain micronutrients, like potassium, accumulate in the berry micronutrients are transported from the soil through the grapevine and into the berry and are essential for yeast during fermentation after this first stage of development there is a lag phase or a brief pause in development I think we all deserve a break after all that hard work from phase one it usually doesn't last too long maybe a week or two the entire berry development takes roughly four months from fertilization to harvest so we haven't got a minute to waste. The start of the third and final phase is pretty obvious because of its visual cue, and that's verasion. This is the stage where we see the development of color. For reds, that means that the berry will change from light green to pink, then to this deep purplish red. And for whites, they will lighten and take on more of a yellow color. At the same time as the color changes in the berry, We are also seeing the berries get bigger and softer. This is because this stage is all about developing sugars. To keep it simple, grapevines convert sunlight and carbon dioxide into sugars, specifically glucose and fructose during photosynthesis. We really don't need to get any more in depth in that chapter of plant physiology for the sake of this episode. But we do need to talk a bit more about sugars because they are hugely important. The sugars that are produced in the berry are directly related to how much alcohol will be in the final wine. Here in the United States, when we are measuring sugar levels in the vineyard and the winery, we measure in bricks, which is a density-based measurement. We know that yeast converts sugar to ethanol, and for every one unit of bricks, we will yield about half a unit, 0.55 to be exact, of ethanol in the finished wine. Since still wines produced in the United States have to be under 16% alcohol to avoid higher taxation, that means that grapes should be harvested before they hit 28 bricks. When grapes are harvested is dependent on the wine and the winemaker's style preference. For instance, we typically harvest grapes used for sparkling wine at a much lower bricks, usually in the low 20s. Other times, Mother Nature intervenes, whether it's rain or a heat wave, and we have to harvest the grapes earlier than we anticipated. A quick side note that could help you the next time you're in the wine aisle, cooler climate wines will have more acid and hotter climate wines will have more alcohol. Imagine the berry as a balloon and you put some confetti in it, which in this metaphor will represent the malic and tartaric acids in the berry. They give wines their tartness and acidity. Now start filling up the balloon with water. The water represents not only the water filling the berry, but also the sugars that develop during this third phase. While the berry is getting bigger and sweeter, as grapes do in hotter regions, the overall concentration of acids will decrease. The end results will be lots of sugar to convert to ethanol, but there won't be as much acidity to the wine. Whereas in cooler climates, The berries won't get as big or as sweet, and so the natural acids are in a much higher concentration, so naturally those wines will be more tart. Think of it as sort of a teeter-totter. Lower acids means higher sugar and higher alcohol, while higher acidity means lower sugars and lower alcohol. So if you're a sucker for a tart white wine like me, I would suggest you look for wines from cooler regions. Like Oregon, New Zealand, and Chile. They sure do pack a punch. But how fast the grapes develop these sugars can be quite the calculation during the growing season. We measure the length of the growing season in degree days, which was developed by the late great A.J. Maynard. He came up with this concept back in the 1940s, and it basically measures the effect of growing time during the spring and summer months leading up to harvest. While you may measure 100 days on the calendar, degree days may not be exactly the same depending on the weather. Degree days measures not only the hours of sunlight, but the heat of the day as well. Higher temps mean that the grapes will develop more quickly because the grapevine will be producing sugars faster. We see a steady increase in this rate of sugar production up to about 95 degrees Fahrenheit, which is where it plateaus. So even if it gets hotter than 95 degrees, the rate of sugar production will stay roughly the same. Here at the North Coast, we typically see grapevines flower in late February or early March. And after roughly four months of growth and development, we harvest the fruit starting in late July or August. One of the first things that I learned in my studies is that you can only make great wine from great grapes. No amount of additives or processing or fancy marketing can make up for fruit that hasn't been well cared for during its growing season. That's why I wanted to talk about grapes first, because they really are the most important part of the winemaking process. But they are so often overlooked. We will get into what happens in the winery later, but making wine really starts in the vineyard. So I wanted to start there as well. A quick recap before we go. Wine grapes, or Vitis vinifera, is an ivy-like plant that has to be trained and produces a single crop of grapes each year. No pressure at all. Grapevines produce hermaphroditic flowers that, when pollinated, produce berries that ripen in three stages. The first stage is focused on creating the skin, tannins, acids, and micronutrients. After a short break, the berries will soften, develop color and sugar, And grow larger in the third stage. We measure grape maturity with bricks, which is a density-based measurement of sugar, and harvest when we are about 20 to 28 bricks, depending on what sort of wine we're making. And if you like fresh, acidic whites, definitely search for wines from cooler regions, like New Zealand, Oregon, or Germany. Speaking of which, it's time for another wine of the week, It is hot here in California, and it doesn't look like the heat is letting up anytime soon. Plus, all this talk of acid has me craving a crisp white wine. One that I had recently that I really enjoyed was Kidia, which is a Chilean Sauvignon Blanc that I picked up on one of my recent trips to Trader Joe's. I typically avoid buying wine from grocery stores. There's just too much to choose from, and usually all the bottles are from big producers. The one exception is Trader Joe's. I have had to purposely avoid the wine section during my last few trips because my wallet and my wine rack just can't handle it. I promise this is not sponsored by Trader Joe's, I really do love their wine selection. I could go on and on, but today it's just about Kittia. Really fresh, crisp, sort of a lime zest feel to it, and plenty tart. It was light and delicious. I could and almost did drink the whole bottle by myself the last time I got it. Really phenomenal for its price, too. I think I may have paid $10 for it, so super affordable. If you are already a fan of New Zealand Sauvignon Blancs, then this is right up your alley. 10 out of 10, will definitely be buying again. Check out your local Trader Joe's for Kidia and see what you think. That's all for this week thank you so much for patiently listening to me geek out about grapes. But don't worry, this podcast won't be all science. Next week is history. Another hugely important part of the wine world that I think gets forgotten about all too often. We will talk about the Romans and the French and wine bricks. I don't know about you, but I'm very excited. But then again, I'm a pretty big history fan make sure to give us a follow on Instagram at Crush Podcast for updates about the podcast, fun facts, and plenty more. I'm Sarah, and this has been your Crush Course on What's in a Grape. Until next time, cheers!